Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. And this morning I'd like to begin reading in verse 15. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Let's stand together and hear the very word of God. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off. And to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning to receive this word, to better understand it, to better know who we are, but more importantly, to better know who you are. Please, Father, reveal yourself to us and reveal the Son to us today by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'd like to break this sermon up into two parts. I think this is the best way to present it. The first part is that we consider ourselves, and then the second part is that we consider God. I think that's a good order by which to think about things. Think about yourself, yes, but don't stop there. Too depressing. Think about God. Think about his promises. Think about what he has done for us. That's where we're going to go this morning. Two perspectives about ourselves as we consider ourselves. The first is this. I think we're doing pretty good. Yeah, so far, so good. Not that bad. That's the first perspective. The second perspective is, this is a train wreck. This isn't like the vehicle has a few scratches after the accident. The steering wheel is in the trunk. It's been a disaster. So which perspective do we take this morning as we consider ourselves? And now, what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to back up to chapter 56 because we did not finish chapter 56 last time. We're going to pick up in verse 9 of 56, and I'm going to work through verse 9 all the way to the end of chapter 57 for the most part, but let's, uh, let's begin by backing up to 56 and verse 9 in order to get a better idea of what the prophet is doing here. And There were no chapter divisions before, say, about a thousand years ago, so this is new, and we, it's important for us to back up often and kind of get a running start on each chapter division, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's begin with uh, verse 9 of chapter 56, and what, what the prophet is doing here is, is speaking prophetically about the condition of the people, and there is a role for the church to speak prophetically. No question about it. The church needs to have a prophetic office in the sense that we apply God's word to the present situation in that sense. Not in the sense that we get extra scriptural revelation and consider what's happening in the future and convey that to God's people. We don't do that. We just simply 
have a direct prophetic word that applies to our situation, and this word applied to Israel. Prior to the exile, right about the time of the northern kingdom's exile, and about a hundred and some years before that Judah takes its exile. So this is a warning to the people of God in the Old Testament. But then the question for us is, is there any application to us at all? So if we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament prophets, is this just like, well, too bad for Israel? You know, we're, we've been doing pretty good, but we're not going to apply any of what we find in Old Testament Israel to our nation or to our church. Now, I would say that it's better to apply what we read to the church than it is to the nation. Points at which we do make application to a nation. And that's legit. But I think more fundamentally we need to say, judgment begins in the household of God, let's look at ourselves first. That's probably the more humble approach to take. And by the way, that's where we're going this morning. Uh, So let's begin with, with the problems, the condition of a backslidden people of God. And most certainly this does apply to us. Let's go through God's complaints against his people. Seven marks of the rebel church, beginning with verse 9 of chapter 56. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. They are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. From his own territory, come, one says, I will bring wine. We will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundance as in party, dude. It's probably the more modern way. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow is going to be even better than today. That's the worldview conveyed here in these words. But, uh, but what's happening is there are the beasts of the field coming to devour. There, there are those external demonic spiritual forces that come in to destroy the people of God. And this is, a, this is a warning, this is a rebuke of the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders, spoken of as dogs, not barking, not watchful. A good dog is a good watchdog. He's going to be barking, but these, these religious leaders aren't barking. They're people pleasers. They don't want to offend anybody. They, they want bodies, bucks, and buildings. They're materialistic. They're complacent. They can't imagine that they will one day have to pay the piper. That's verse 12. Tomorrow, as, as abundant as today, everything's wonderful. Everything's going well. This speaks to the sin of greed. There appears to be a great deal of commitment to greed. Money is big. People concerned about money all the time. Speaking of money, wanting more money. Those leadership in the church... One is the bodies, bucks, and buildings. Always comparing. Their eyes looking out to who's doing better in terms of church attendance, these sorts of things. But it ultimately comes down to greed. And this idea that nobody will ever have to pay the piper. Modern day application, they don't condemn the debt, the stealing, the redistribution of wealth, the utter evil of the Federal Reserve System. Our, Our entire country is is rife with the violations of the eighth commandment it's it's a mess it's it's impossible to straighten it out without an atom bomb coming down over washington dc i have no idea how we would ever fix such a horrible condition that has gotten worse and worse over a hundred years and the pastors themselves they don't condemn the utterly destructive policies of fractional reserve banking They have this existentialistic live for today. And who cares about tomorrow? Tomorrow we're all going to be dead, says John Maynard Keynes. It's a modern investor, the modern government official, the modern American, making the quick buck all the time. This is happening even among many Christians. They won't condemn the greed, the get-rich-quick schemes of those who use money printing artificial inflationary economies to enrich themselves. Printing the money, enriching the U.S. federal government and all of its friends to the tune of $7 trillion, while the average retiree, the average widow, has lost 23% of the value of her savings account in 12 years adjusted for inflation, relying on her certificates of deposit. This is shameful. This is evil. 
This is the ultimate in terms of the violation of the, the ninth commandment, the tenth commandment, the eighth commandment. It's horrific. It's terrible. It's wicked to the ultimate degree. And nobody is saying anything about it that I ever hear, at least from the pulpit. Sometimes the conservative economists will make a, a word about it, but almost no pastor cares a whit about the stealing that is happening in Washington, D.C., and participated in by many investors that sit in pews in American churches. Shame on them. Shame, shame, shame for what's happening to the dogs who aren't barking and those who are enriching themselves off of widows who are barely making it through their savings accounts today. Now, I realize that this is insidious. But what are they saying? Come, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. And we'll never have to pay the piper. We'll enrich ourselves on inflation, on the devaluation of the monetary system, on the corrupting of the money supply. And, and we don't want to hear anything about it in church. We don't want to hear about the violation of God's commandments in the church. That's the attitude of Americans today. It's all going to be great in five years from now. There will be no problems. It'll never happen here. Think I'll have another beer. That's the mentality of Americans today. But it just gets worse and worse and worse. The major point here is they pretend a spiritual health. They think they're spiritually healthy. The churches think they're healthy. They think the economy is healthy. They think there's moral health in the nation. There isn't any. They can't see that the church or the nation is on the verge of total disaster. It's a house of cards, a socioeconomic disaster of biblical proportions waiting to happen. And, and they're not going to say anything about it. There, there's no urgency. There's no sense of a problem in the minds of God's people either. They can't see that we're cruising for a bruising. Judgment is imminent, extremely imminent, unmitigated, unprecedented, unimaginable judgment upon socioeconomies coming down on the Western world. They just can't see it, and they won't talk about it. These are the, the dogs that won't bark spoken of in Isaiah 56. This is it. This is the example that we find in the modern day. Come, I will bring wine. We'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, much more abundant. They can't see. They don't fear God. They, this glib acknowledgement of God, but no real conception of God and His holiness and His intensive attention to every detail of our lives, His presence, His power, His justice, His law the intensive necessity of, of grace and mercy upon the people of God. They're just not seeing it. They're not conveying it. We're not hearing about it. They won't bark. And they don't like barking. They're sleeping. They're lying down. They don't want to be disturbed in their sleep. That's number one. Number two, chapter 57. Let's move on to verse one. The righteous perish. No man takes it to heart. The merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from the evil. And typically what happens is you find a, a slow but steady degrade of faithful churches and faithful pastors, and we're down to a small remnant. And that's where we are today as a nation. Just a tiny remnant. It's so tiny. The churches have whittled down to almost nothing in our day. The old prophets are long dead and gone. From the 1920s, 30s, 40s, starting with A.A. Hodge and C.S. Uh, Lewis and, and uh, Francis Schaeffer and, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you go through the list, the prophets are dead and gone today. There's hardly anybody writing these things anymore. Things are about a hundred times worse than they were when J. Gresham Machen was around writing his warnings upon what would happen to an apostate nation materialistic people, etc., etc. They were, they were writing these things, but you don't read these things much anymore. The, all, the old prophets have gone. They're all dead. Just about. And, and so 
the reason for this is because of the principle of supply and demand. So symbiosis means supply and demand. People don't want it. There's no demand for it. So there will be no supply for it. That, that's, that's the problem. Okay, this is the prophetic message today, brothers and sisters. Number three, generally people are pretty happy with their morality. We find this in verse two. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. They all feel pretty good about themselves, content in their orientations. You know, this is my orientation. It's good. The adulterer, the harlot, they're good. You ask them, how are you doing? They say, I'm good. That's the classic line today. I'm good. That's, that, that's what the adulterer says today. How are, you, how are you doing? I'm good. That's the present day. The gossip, the slander in the church, he's doing just fine. The problem is always with everybody else. Everybody's doing good for themselves. No need for God. No need for Christ's righteousness. Remember one time I was preaching in eastern Tennessee. It's a couple of years ago. This young man comes up to me. And I was so shocked. I was just so taken back. I, it was just this jarring moment for me when he said, I, I'm concerned for my soul. And he was fearful and concerned about his soul. And I, I just such a shock to my system. I, in all of my preaching across the nation, I, it's just so rare where somebody is actually concerned for their eternal soul. What a shock to my system. Because see, Americans are doing good. Everything's good, except that it's not. So that, that's, that's number three. And the number four, he shall enter into peace. I read that. God speaks with sarcasm now in verse three. Come here, you sons of the sorcerer, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children of the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering, you have poured a grain offering. Sure, should I receive comfort in these on a lofty and high mountain? You've set your bed, even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts, you've set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You've enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed when, where you saw their nudity. What is this prevalence of idolatry? We've t- talked about this often in the church, that there is so much of this idolatry that goes on. So what is the prophet saying? But that people are religious by nature. They're, they always offer sacrifices. People are very religious. They exert themselves expend themselves in religious sacrifice, but this is a spiritual adultery here. You know, a woman owes herself to her husband. She took the vow to do that, right? She, she vowed her body. She vowed herself to her husband as the husband did to his wife. And, and so similarly, we, we, we do not own ourselves. That, that woman does not own her body. She can't go off and give her body to anybody else. It doesn't belong to her anymore. She didn't have a right to do that. She can't share her body with, you know, all these other guys. That's, that's wrong. And so we have, have given ourselves to, to God. We have betrothed ourselves to Jesus. And we can't be running around worshiping other idols, brothers and sisters. We can't be doing this. That's what it's saying here. That's spiritual adultery. You can't use your body as a living sacrifice for other gods, including the God of self. Don't offer yourself a living sacrifice to the self-God. The self-God is the big God today. We we know that. People sacrifice for themselves. The self-God, they give themselves up for the self-God. They sacrifice their children on the altar of convenience. The convenience of childless sex. Way, way easier today. Homosexuality is the obvious application to that. It's very convenient Other forms is, is, you know, self 
gratification and such. It's, it's all about childless sex. It's all about sex for me. For me. I will gratify me today. I will offer sacrifices to the idol of me today. That's what it is, brothers and sisters. That's what's afflicting 80% of the men. They're offering sacrifices to the big me God. It's idolatry, right? We've talked about this before. But now we have this child sacrifice thing that shows up as well. Slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock. And you know why this is so common? It was, it was the Phoenicians that did it. And Carthage was the big center of all the child sacrifices. They're just now finding tons of child sacrifices. And they dig them all up and they find hundreds of thousands of children that are sacrificed. And the Carthaginians did it. Why? Because Carthaginians are Americans. Carthaginians were materialistic. It was all about the big buck. It was all about living the convenient and materialistic lifestyle. That was Carthage. And that's why they killed hundreds of thousands of babies. They sacrificed it for material wealth. That's why it, was, it happened that way. And now it's far, far more convenient than the bloody surgical abortions. There's almost no surgical abortions today compared to the others. Only 600,000, that's a lot. But consider all the mephipristone kill pill by male abortions, now up to at least one point, one, between 1 and 1.6 million. There's more kill pill abortions now by mephipristone or the RU46 pill than there are surgical abortions. That's why the abortion clinics are shutting down. They can send them by mail now. It's pretty easy. So there's way more abortions today. Way more abortions today than there were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. We haven't made any progress at all. And these pro-lifers, they said, you're making some progress in Tennessee. Not, not, not in Tennessee, nowhere. Because of the kill pill by mail program allowed for by the USDA. So my numbers are somewhere around 1.6 million kill pills Abortions today, the after pill kills about 1.6 million as well. The IUD is killing between 8 million and 10 million babies. We're, we're upwards of 12 to 14 million abortions a year, 600,000 of which are surgical abortions. That's where we are today because it's so convenient. You can kill your child anywhere today. It's so easy to kill a child today, so much easier than it was in 1995. That's why the CPC did this resolution. I'm going to read it for you. Two years ago, and I remember, brothers, afterwards, you may remember, all of us were on the floor crying out to God in repentance and asking God's forgiveness that we as pastors, as the dogs that should have barked, we were not barking. And we, we asked God's forgiveness for this. And we committed to sharing this with other denominations. Thus far, not a single denomination is interested. But, but the CPC came together and said, we've got a concern here. It's the same issue. Here's the way it went. Whereas the sixth commandment of the Lord our God forbids murder, Exodus 20, 13. And whereas Exodus 21, 22, and 25 reprobates even the negligent allowing for hazardous conditions in the presence of a pregnant woman and levies a penalty against the perpetrators on the untimely birth of the child. And whereas scripture levies serious civil penalties on those who needlessly and recklessly risk the lives of others, resulting in death, Exodus 21, 28. And whereas the confessional statement of the Covenant Presbyterian Church denomination requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the lives of others and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. And whereas the Stanford study mechanisms of action for intrauterine devices indicate that an average of 0.8 post-fertilization babies were lost per woman by use of the IUD per year on five different IUDs tested and 14% of American women 15 to 44 years of age used the IUD resulting in the deaths of 6,750,000 babies per year an increase from 960,000 babies in 2000 and whereas other forms of conception control such as birth control pill exhibit abortifacient qualities according to multiple studies and medical advisements and whereas studies have found the plan B pill acts as an abortifacient 80 to 92% of the time 
And whereas 32% of sexually active evangelical women are in use of these high-efficiency forms of conception control compared to the national average of 36%, and whereas according to credible scientific studies, the majority of babies killed in this country each year are not killed by surgical abortions, but by the use of these chemical methods, and whereas the Christian church should be the very, at the very least marked by a commitment to preserve human life, and whereas of all the prevalent cultural sins of the nation, this is among the most heinous and most grievous to God, especially as it is common among the churches that align themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life. Therefore, be it resolved that the Covenant Presbyterian Church repents of our silence to date on this abominable sin and seeks God for His mercy upon us and His church. Be it further resolved that the Covenant Presbyterian Church encourages all persons including professing Christians, to stop the killing of children in the womb by either abortion or the use of abortifacients, and be it further resolved that the Covenant Presbyterian Church denomination will encourage all other evangelical and Reformed denominations to join in making a consistent stand to preserve the life in the womb, and be it further resolved that the Covenant Presbyterian Church denomination will encourage all its pastors to warn its members, married couples and soon-to-be-married couples, of the risks of abortifacient forms of conception control, assuring all of the mercies of Christ to forgive and cleanse from all of our unrighteousnesses. So, brothers and sisters, the church must speak out on the idolatry of self. Now, I understand there are hundreds of applications of this. So anybody who steps back says, well, thank God I'm not like, like other men. I don't worship self. We all have our own violations of this commandment and we repent of it, we turn to Christ, we receive his forgiveness for our sins. I get that. But let's be sure that we're speaking out. Let's be sure that we're saying, no, no, we're not going to allow for the human sacrifice to the gods of convenience, personal peace and affluence. We're not going to do that. We're not going to give official okays to, to any of this as the church. Let's move on to number five. The fifth indication of a rebellious church, verses 9 and 10. They were not honest with the impoverishment and the uselessness of serving false gods. In other words, they were serving all these false gods and they acted like it was great. They acted like there was so much fulfillment, there's so much joy, we're having so much peace and wonderful affluence and the blessings of God that are poured out upon our idolatries. Well, verse, verse 9 and 10 says, No, you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Shale. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say there's no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. They rise up early, they sit up late, they eat the bread of sorrows. They're, they're, they're constantly on this, this, this search for that which will fulfill their desires. And yet they won't admit to the fact that so far they've attempted, you know, 1,463,000 opportunities for fulfilling the desires of my life and my flesh. But so far, no peace, no joy. They pretend they're at peace. They pretend they're joyful, but they're not. The first step towards repentance, of course, is truthfulness and to acknowledge, you know, I'm the guy, I'm, I'm not at peace. I've been lying to myself for all these years. I've sat in the pews and pretended that I was, I was in Christ. I had the peace that passes understanding. I didn't have it. So, so they had to confess this. Then number six, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 11, of whom have you been afraid or feared? That you have lied and not remembered me. This is God speaking to the rebellious church nor taken it to your heart. It is not because I've held my peace from them of old that you do not fear me. So what they were doing is they were taking God's patience and God's blessing of prosperity with which he had blessed them and they used it as an excuse not to fear him. Romans 2 speaks of the patience and kindness of God that should lead to repentance. That's, that's what he's trying to do and treating his people with this kindness. It, it, it should yield to gratitude. It should yield uh, to humility, a recognition that we don't deserve the least of his kindnesses and that we would be more softened. But they were hardened in their sexual sin, hardened in their idolatries, their discontentment, their lack of gratitude, hardened in these things. They feared him less and less because they thought they were good people. They didn't need God. They took his gifts. They despised the giver. They took God's good gifts as the prodigal 
took the gift from the father. She spent the money on prostitutes and didn't even thank God for the prostitutes. There's an irony there, isn't there? I took God's resources, spent it on the prostitutes, and they're not even thanking God for the money. And they're not thanking God for the prostitutes. This is desperate. This is horrific. This is terrible. Number seven, and we're getting down to more fundamentals here as we think of the lack of fear of God, and then there's this lack of trust in God, and their trust is in themselves and their own pitiful righteousness. They're they're idols that can't save them in the day of trouble. Verses 12 and 13, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they, they will not profit. God is standing up saying, I'm going to look at your righteousness. I'm going to declare it. I'm going to point it out on judgment day. There's your righteousness. There's another righteousness. There's another. Not enough. Not enough. Relying upon your own righteousness. Not nearly enough. Man looks to himself for salvation. This is so basic. Ultimately, it's the pride of man that looks to himself. Man is that guy in the North Sea's dog paddling for his life fails to look up and reach for the lifeline. You know, the lifeline for the helicopters come down in front of him and he just, it's okay, I'm going to paddle. I'm just dog paddling for my life. And that's what man does. He's constantly trying to save himself, relying upon his own goodness, his own righteousnesses. So foolish. So foolish. All right, now let's get to the pivot point in verse 13. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. That's the pivot point. We are saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We we are saved. We, We are justified by faith alone. We receive the life of God in us. And it's it's our faith. That's that's the fundamental, but we're going to get to a more fundamental, that is humility in just a moment. But it's believing in God, trusting in the righteousness of Christ, trusting in the promises of God. That's the point at which he is saved. Salvation comes by trusting in God. And then the promise is he shall possess the land. Glory, the ultimate promised land shall inherit my holy mountain, and one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. And this is, uh, I believe, a reference to John the Baptist. I think this, this is, there's all these stumbling blocks that are getting in the way of God's people, and John the Baptist comes through, clears out all of the stumbling blocks, and makes a way for Jesus. That, that I think, is the reference here. Take away the stumbling blocks, out of the way of my people, John the Baptist, go, and then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the announcement that comes. So all of the spiritual bankruptcy of Old Testament Israel is, is led to the proclamation of the coming of Jesus and to look to Jesus for salvation because Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. So what to do with the rebel church? You know, as we've gone through this, you've you got to admit, there's some depressing elements of this report. It hasn't been fun for me, by the way. I, I don't actually appreciate going through all of these things. It's, it's tough. Well, it's convicting at points. But it, it, it reveals our sins. And sometimes it makes us feel like that we have a shrinking church. The enemy of the church raking its claws over the church and dragging the church off into exile. And that's what was going on. And that's the way the prophet felt. And that's the way sometimes we feel. And we have an inkling there's something wrong with us, with me. We're not talking about all of those people. But we begin to see there's something wrong with us. We're not talking about those who have an inkling there's something wrong with somebody else. We're talking about the remnant, like Josiah of old. As the word of God comes to you this morning, Josiah saw something he didn't see before, and he tore his clothes. And I think that's the response first 
of, of those of us who see what's going on in the Word, the Word is coming with convicting force upon us. We don't tear other people's clothes. Josiah didn't run around tearing everybody else's clothes. He tore his own clothes. So that's where it starts. We tear our own clothes. We begin to see things from God's perspective, and it's, it's a good thing. Our eyes are being opened to our sin, our, our need for Christ. That's good. Pulling it back, seeing it. And then verse 15. Who do we trust? We trust in God. God is introducing himself to us again. Behold your God. And this is key for us. We've seen ourselves. Now we're going to see God. We're going to look up and we're going to see God. In all of his glory. In all of his transcendence and his eminence. We're going to see both. We're going to see a, a vision of both of these things come in verse 15. So let's read it again. This, I believe, the key verse of this passage. Here is the object of our faith. What do we believe in? What are we looking to? Who's our Savior? Here it is. Verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Praise God. You feel the, the, you feel the balm of the word of God and, and the blessing of God coming into your whole, whole soul right now as you read these words. Let's, let's, let's examine this for a moment. Who is this God? Do we trust? Let's take this apart piece by piece just for a moment. The first is this. God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. What does this mean? He lives in forever land. What is it to live in forever land? He lives outside of time. He lives in a country of ever existence. He lives where infinite livelihood always exists, the land of eternity. Now, the minute I say, you say, well, that doesn't sound like me. It doesn't sound like anybody I know. God lives in eternity. What does this mean? He's altogether in a different category of existence, He is ultimate existence. Now again, this is who we trust. This is who we believe in. You're, you're leaning forward in your chair saying, I, I need something to believe in that is substantial as I come to salvation. This is God. We look to God in his, in his eternality, in his unchangeableness. We, this is God above, way above everything else. We exist. The devils exist. The angels exist because God exists. They have life. Because he is the source of life. This makes for a substantial difference, an essential difference between, between us and God, between any creature and God himself. We live in complete dependence upon God. We're a dependent creature. We need oxygen, water, food, defense from malevolent microbes to live. We do. Too many malevolent microbes crawl up your pant leg, get into you, you're dead. How in the world are you going to survive? God, God, God doesn't grow old. He lives in eternity. He doesn't grow old. We read in the Psalms, the galaxies grow old and wear out like a garment. My favorite shirts, you know them, I wear them for 15 years. My sweaters, 12 years. 20, excuse me. 20 years. My sweaters last 20 years. The galaxies last 100 billion years. And they wear out like pastor's sweaters. Phenomenal. God is beyond all of this. All of this wears out. Trust in him, look to him, believe in him. Get your eyes off yourself and your own righteousness. Look to him. Man is not even close to God in terms of the perfection of existence, the perfection of power and virility and everything else. I was thinking Albert Einstein is only slightly more intelligent than a person in a persistent vegetative state. Albert Einstein, person in persistent vegetative state, 
very close compared to God. Strongest man in the world, children, you know who he was? Still to this day, Paul Anderson, a Christian. Pretty extraordinary guy, lifted 6,270 pounds in 1956, and nobody has passed that record since 1956. Paul Anderson lifted 6,270 pounds with his back. Christian man. But kids, he's only slightly more powerful than a six-month baby compared to God. You understand? Do you understand who we're talking about here? The power of God, the eternality of God, the changelessness of God, the wisdom of God. Do you, do you know who this God is? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? One angel killed 185,000 men in one night. The angels excel in strength, but nothing compared to the creator. Could wipe out all existence in 0.1 seconds. The angels are stronger than Paul Manderson, but God is stronger than the angels. Infinitely stronger. I just give you these examples because, brothers and sisters, consider God. Consider the object of your faith. What do you believe in? Use this example one time. Put a little weak little branch up there. Two guys were holding it, and we put a little eight-year-old kid to swing from it, and it just cracked right away. Then I took a big old two-inch diameter branch, a couple of kids held it, and then that little kid swung from that branch, no problem. Didn't break. Why? Because the object of the faith was stronger. The object of your faith matters. The object of your faith ultimately matters. Believe in God. Sufficient to save you. Sufficient to save. God dwells in eternity. Secondly, God is holy. God is holy. What does this mean? This means pristine righteousness. Nothing can possibly contaminate his standard of goodness and rightness. He meticulously cleans up every part of that which is wrong. Take somebody like my wife, you get a tablecloth that's white. She's like 40 feet away. She sees one little spot in the middle of it. She has to take it out. I mean, I take me a magnifying glass to see it. She sees it from 40 feet away. Brothers and sisters, God is meticulous in his cleanliness. He sees it from 400 trillion miles away. You can see that little dot. He's got to clean that up. He's got to clean all that up, kids. Sees a sin in your life, he's got to clean it up. He can't even, in such holy eyes, he can't even behold that which is wicked. It's not a slight compromise to his perfect justice. No sin, no lie, no injustice, no killing of one innocent child that won't be completely cleansed, cleaned up, met with the fires of his justice. Behold your God, completely holy. Now, number three, this is the most amazing character of our God from this text. He dwells in two places. He dwells in a high and lofty place and with him who is a humble and contrite spirit. Children, you've got your notes in front of you. Okay, we've already gone over some of this, haven't we? The disobedient church trusts in themselves. It's number one. The disobedient church trusts in themselves. Number two, the faithful church trusts in God. And number three, God comes to those who are humble. God comes to those who are humble. And, and that's the point here. He dwells with those who are of a humble and contrite spirit. He, he dwells in a transcendent place, far above all principalities and powers. So over the universe, he's outside of the universe and controls every aspect of the universe and beyond the universe. Up in the, they say the third heaven. I don't know what that means. But he's way beyond, way transcendent over all of it with absolute authority over everything, every power, every principality, and he's in that lowly dungeon with the weak, with the humble, contrite Christian who's on his knees just crying out to him. He's there too. He's there too. 
Children, where does God live? He lives in the highest throne room in the third heaven and in dungeons, in those those little um, storage containers in the deserts of Somalia. Remember seeing that? I can't imagine being in one of those steel containers in the desert at 130 degrees Fahrenheit. God is in there. He's right there with them. Psalm 107 says, Those who sat in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in affliction irons, there they sat. They rebelled against the words of God, despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down. There was none to help. Then what happened? Humble and contrite spirit. How did they respond? There they were. rebelled against God. Rebelled against his words. They, they, they found themselves in the shadow of death. They, they, were, they were in chains to, to sin. They, they were under the command of the devil. They, they could not shake off that addiction. They just couldn't. They loved it. They, they were embracing the devil himself, kissing the chains that bound them. But then he brought down their heart with labor, and they fell down, and there was nobody to help. But they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. It was just that simple. They were on the ground. They had reached the bottom of the barrel. And at that point, they looked up and said, God, have mercy on me. And God said, yes, I'm there. And he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death. Praise God, broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Brothers and sisters, it's for us to be the humble and contrite. That's it. The humble and the contrite church is the church that is the remnant. That's it. That's the one metric. That's the metric that matters more than anything else right now. Pride is insanity. You all agree with that? Think about the proud man on death row. I killed more people than you. Doesn't make any sense. The proud man on death row, the proud man in a burning building, which is where we are today as a nation. Proud men in a burning building. They're, the whole thing's in flames. They're, they're in a towering inferno on the 47th floor. And they're like, I got this. Stupidity, ultimate insanity, wouldn't you agree? That's crazy. A proud man in the towering inferno I don't think so. The proud man standing in front of the blazing galaxies in the heavens. A proud astronaut. Insanity. I've never met an astronaut. But a proud astronaut? Utter insanity. To be 40,000 miles from the earth and to see the gigantic spheres that God has created. And standing there in front of all these spheres in our solar system, in front of the sun, in front of anybody, standing in front of the galaxies that the the God of heaven has made, and that guy is like, check me out. Insanity. Do you all agree to say amen if, if you think that's insanity? That's just insane. The proud serial killer on death row pointing at the sins of others, arguing his case. The proud preacher pointing out the holiness of God. The proud mouse lifting up his mouse fist in the face of the elephant. You've heard these before. Sinful man, proud of his righteousness, heading into the courtroom of God, fully persuaded he's got a good case. How would you like to be him? I've got all my excuses. I've got all my self-justifications. i got all my blame everybody else. I'm going into the courtroom of God. I'm going to argue my case with Almighty God to the standards of His absolutely sublime holiness. I'm going to make my case with God. Insanity. That's just insanity. 
Brothers and sisters, we have no standing with God outside of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his righteousnesses, and his new life that he gives to us. Well, brothers and sisters, let me give you one application. I want to end with this, just a single application. Let's be humble. Can we commit to be humble? Let's be a humble church. I'm not going to say the most humble church on earth. Right? Isn't that where you tend to go with that, right? I was talking to an immigrant brother who pastors a church in one of the burned out western countries in Europe. And his heart just was rent. I prayed with him a little bit. He's an immigrant brother from another country in the Middle East. Got into one of the burned out western countries. And he's facing the heart-rending apostasy of the old frozen chosen. The European Protestant faith. The Reformed faith. The youth are leaving the church in droves. The frozen chosen are shriveling up. But you know he said something to me? He said, but brother, I've been street preaching for 11 years in this major metropolitan area. And they're coming off the streets off the highways and byways. He said, brother, there was a man that came into our church, a Satanist, satanic tattoos on his face, and he got saved. And his whole family is attending church with us. Praise God. God is working. God is saving every tribe and nation coming to Jesus. But it's going to be the humble from the highways and byways. Amen? That's us. That's us. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. The whole parable is really geared towards the Pharisees, the older brother. The younger brother is doing better than the older brother. The guy with the tattoos on his face coming into church, doing better than the brother who's been in church for the last four generations. See, that's the point of the prodigal son. And, and the single prayer for all of us is what? That we identify with the guy who's got tattoos on his face, who's coming in, falling down before Jesus as the prodigal, falling down before Jesus as the publican, and we identify with the publican. We identify with the prodigal. It's the sinner woman. We read the story of the sinner woman. That's me. That is me to a T. That's me. I am the sinner woman at the feet of Jesus, and he has forgiven my sin. I was the harlot. I was the homosexual. I was the Satanist. But he saved me from that. He forgave my sin. And I will weep over his feet in gratitude into the eons of eternity. All except for the fact we're not going to be weeping but rejoicing. So, brothers and sisters, that's the prayer this morning. That's it. That you and I will identify with the publican and the sinner woman at the feet of Jesus. If there's ever a time for humility, it's right now, brothers and sisters, to be more humbled, not less, more receptive of God's sharp word and warning, not less receptive, to be more impacted, more, more torn apart more realizing our need, more seeing the blessedness of Jesus. More so, not less, more so. More humbled, more of a sinner, but more forgiven. And more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. To repent is to realize more and more the holiness of God and his law. The longer you sit in church and hear these messages, you're either going to be hardened to it or you're going to be softened by it. You're either going to be more proud and hard or you're going to be more softened and more realizing the holiness of God, the sinfulness of yourself, and the gloriousness of Jesus and his great mercy for you on that cross. And before, you would have been surprised by the judgment of God, the vehemence of his judgment, the violence, the intensity of his hatred of sin. You were offended by the worldwide flood. You were offended that there was a hell 
into which men, women, and children would be cast for eternity. You were offended by all of that. But now, you're actually more surprised by his mercy than by his judgment. You're more surprised that he saved Noah. You're more surprised that he saved the man on the cross next to Jesus. You're more surprised that he saved anybody. You're shocked. You're overwhelmed by the mercy of God. You're you're not upset with the judgment of God, but you certainly are more surprised by the mercy of God than by the judgment of God. Our whole attitude towards ourselves, towards our sin, towards the world has got to change. And this will change our life's attitudes. When the nuclear warheads come down, when the Son of Man comes with His holy angels, the safest place to be is on your face next to the sinner woman weeping over the feet of Jesus. That's the place to be. Zephaniah 2 Verses 2 and 3, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, verse 3, seek the Lord, O you meek of the earth, who have lifted, who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness and humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Whatever happens, brothers and sisters, in the future, whether it be a temporal judgment in exile or eternal judgment, whatever happens, the meek will be just fine at the feet of Jesus, which is fine before the feet of Jesus. The earth will be in turmoil, but there's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace. Verses 19 through 21, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So I'll just leave you with that. Brothers and sisters, have you heard the words of Jesus? Your sins are forgiven you. Peace, peace. Now you have peace with God through me, the Lord Jesus Christ because of the sacrifice I have given for you on the cross. Have have you heard those words? Are you at peace today? Have you looked to God, specifically to Jesus, and received that forgiveness and know that you are at peace now? Right here, right here, right now. I trust that's the way it is with you. Amen. Our Father God, We thank you, Father, for this great message of peace. You you bring your son that there would be peace with you. You have brought your son that we would be forgiven and accepted. That we would be right with you. That we would be your children. Father, and you draw near to us. You draw near to those that need you, that need Jesus, those that are humbled before you. Father, we are here just looking up and saying, God, have mercy on us. God, forgive us. Receive us through Jesus. And Father, as we say this, we know that you've received us. We we know that we have peace with you. Because you draw near to us. You draw near to those who cry out for you, for your salvation. And Father, if there's been anybody here that looks to themselves, looks to their own righteousnesses, dependent upon their own works, oh God, that you'd open their eyes now to to know the impoverishment of all of that and to count all of that just garbage for the sake of Christ. And that today they would look to Jesus and be saved. In his name we pray, amen. We come to the Lord's table to commune with him. And it is communion and fellowship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
and not just as deity, but also as humanity. We, we, we receive that through the visible means of the bread and the cup. But let me talk about humility one more time. I'm going to start with Psalm 51:16. Very interesting what appears to be contradictions in this passage. So let me read this for you briefly. And then I want to point out how uh, this works out in the death of Jesus. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a burnt, broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then they shall offer bulls on your altar. On the one hand, what we find here is God is not delighting in sacrifice, and then we find that he also is pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. So how do we resolve that? On the one hand, he doesn't delight in it. On the other hand, he does delight in it. So you have this contradiction going on in these last verses of Psalm 51. But you notice also that it says the sacrifices he's looking for from us is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, he will not despise. So on the one hand, he doesn't really delight in the sacrifices of burnt offering of bulls and goats and those sorts of things that the Old Testament saints were bringing to him. That's the way to put it. He didn't really have much delight in it because he knew that these sacrifices were not sufficient. They didn't do it. They were only a picture of what was to come. So the Old Testament sacrifice is not enough. But what does God want? What, what is it that pleases him? Humility. Humility. Humble obedience on the part of his own son. And there are two humilities that go on in this. The first is our humility. We talked about that. The humble and contrite spirit, oh God, that will not despise. So God receives us. As, as we humbly receive his word, convicted by it, see our need for Jesus. That's what God wants from us. But what does he want in terms of sacrifice? The humble, obedient sacrifice of his son. Not just the humility of us, but the humility of his son. So we have two humilities converging here at the cross of Jesus. You all see that? The sacrifice of Jesus was obedience. It was what Adam didn't do. Adam didn't obey. Jesus did. It was obedience. It was voluntary. It was vicarious. It was on, on our part. It was done out of love for the Father. It was reconciling and truly propitiating and enabling us to come to God. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, so the sacrifice wasn't just throwing a reluctant person on the altar. No, no, no. It was a willing sacrifice of the Son of God, obeying the Father all the way to the very end. This is the sacrifice that God receives. The father saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. He accepted the sacrifice that comes from the suffering servant, the humble, obedient sacrifice of his son. And he draws near to us in our humility. Christ's humility brought Christ down. Our humility brings God down. Does that make sense? The humilities, we bow before the cross. And when we bow before Jesus, when we stoop with the sinner woman at Jesus' feet, in humility, receiving the blood of Christ, receiving the forgiveness of Christ, as we bow before the cross, we humble ourselves before humility. We, the undeserving of his grace, we, the deserving of eternal punishment, humble ourselves before the one who is undeserving of our punishment on the cross, yet humbled himself to the cross. Humility meets humility at the cross today. This bread and cup is the humble work of Jesus. Think of it that way. That he spilled his blood for us. He broke open his body through the, the piercing of the sword into his flesh. That was the result of the humility of Christ, the ultimate humility of Christ 
going to the cross for us, the bread and the cup, the humble work of Jesus to be received by the humble today. So all I say is, brothers and sisters, there's a warning, yes, in the bulletin. You can read it if you like, if you haven't read it. But all I'm saying is, this is for the humble. This is for the humble and the contrite. This is for those who identify with the sinner woman. You, you, you say, yes, I am at the feet of Jesus. Yes, I am, as a publican, throwing myself down and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who this is for today. The blood of Christ, shed by the humble Savior on the cross, is for the humble. Receive it in humility. Receive it in faith. And most essentially, what are we saying? We're saying that we receive a Savior that we need a Savior we depend on, a Savior who is offered to us by the mercy and the grace of God. That's what we're saying. Okay, let's go to prayer. Father, we are amazed at the humiliation of the very Son of God, your Son, eternally begotten, eternally beloved, ultimately at the throne of Almighty God from, from the very echelons of the third heaven down to the very depths of the cross for us, for us. Oh, Father, we pray that as we come before you this day, we have a deeper sense of our need, in a sense, our undeservedness. And yet, the, the beauty of the holiness of God, the beauty of the humbleness of Jesus, the beauty of the grace and the mercy that is poured out upon us by the shed blood of Jesus and by the forgiveness that flows. Oh God, that we receive this with humility and then also joy and gratefulness and faith and hope. Bless us this day. Holy Spirit, attend this entire service with the life of Christ. Administer it to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.